to our Brave Feminine Leadership interviews where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and I get to ask them all about women in leadership and I get to hear their stories and soak up their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership. And today I am thrilled to welcome Tammy Medard. Lovely to have you here, Tammy. Thanks for having me here, Melissa. Pleasure. Now I'm going to touch on your bio and um, then we'll get going with our conversation. So Tammy is Managing Director at ANZ. So she runs Australia's largest institutional banking business. Originally from the United States, Tammy moved to Australia over 17 years ago. She's been in financial services for 20 years and is passionate about driving diversity, be it gender, abilities, ethnicity, in all parts of society. But starting with her own team in the financial services sector, Tammy, as I said, I am so thrilled to have you here. We'll jump into a bit later on how you and I met because I love that story. But before we get there, tell me, who are you as a human being? Tell us all about you. Thanks, Melissa. I love that question. Um, I think it's it's a great one. And it's something that as a leader, I think it's really important um, to figure that out because leaders, I believe, need to have intention with everything they do. Otherwise, they get pulled in a million different directions. So knowing who you are, I think, I don't know, makes my job a little bit easier. Um, I, as a human being, I am a daughter of immigrants. My mother was a Cuban refugee that went to the United States, and my father from the Basque region of Spain migrated to the United States. And the reason why I bring that up is, for me, that is so... Um, the foundation of who I am, I think as, and, and, you know, perhaps a lot of people who are children of immigrants would feel this way, maybe not. But for me, seeing the choices, the challenges that my parents and my grandparents made uh, gave me an appreciation that I think would have been harder for me to have in terms of hard work, in terms of learning new languages, learning new cultures, being curious about other people, being open-minded. Um, but also being a bit different from the very homogeneous um, neighborhood I grew up in, mm. um, being one of very few that seemed to speak a different language or eat different foods. Um, I also felt what it was like to be different and to feel like I didn't belong uh, and to feel underestimated. And I think all of those experiences have really formed who I am as a human being, uh, which is someone who is striving so hard to change that in society to help people feel that they belong, no matter, as you said in my intro, you know, no matter what their ethnicity is, their gender, their ability, um, that we all should feel absolutely uh, relevant and valid and, and that we belong and that we have a voice and our voice matters. So that, that's who I am as a human being. I, I bring that to my role as a mother of two beautiful children. Um, as a wife to an amazing husband and to as a daughter, sister, friend, family member and, and business leader. Fantastic. So let's jump into the business journey because you've got a fascinating business journey. So let's start off with how did you work out where you wanted to, to go, what you wanted to do? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in a household. My dad worked a few jobs and he worked industrial jobs. He worked um, at a dock as a stevedore and, um, and as an engineer at a, at a leather making plant. 
And I, I never wanted for anything. I had a really beautiful upbringing, but I saw how hard my dad worked and that he came home dirty. And I thought yeah. to myself, you know what? I know that I have my my father and my mother and my grandmother's work ethic, and I'm going to work really hard no matter what I'm doing. So I might as well get paid well yeah. for it. <laughs> to be quite honest, I wish I had like a a, a more um, a nicer rationale, but it was basically that. I love and it. yeah, growing up in in the 1980s, just outside Manhattan, I saw that people who worked in financial services, banking in particular, were getting paid pretty well. And I thought, I want to do that. Um, however, what I also saw is people that were getting those jobs, um, you know, they tended to be white males and they tended to have, you know, fathers who played golf with the chairman of the big banks and the big companies. So I knew really from a very early age that I wasn't always the smartest person in the room. So I wasn't going to go to Harvard or one of those that might kind of pave the way. So I was going to have to use my kind of scrappiness and my work ethic to get where I knew I was capable of getting to because I was going to have a few uphill battles. So it was probably when I was about 15 that I set my sights on big financial services business. And it's been an intentional journey the whole way. And so starting in New York, starting work in New York initially. Yeah, starting work uh, actually at an insurance company that was headquartered just outside um, Manhattan near where I lived. I sought an internship during high school. They had these programs typically for kids who weren't going to go on to university. Uh, but I actually saw that as a great opportunity to be able to get real life work experience and also test the theory. Is this something I could really do? Mm-hmm. And so started working at, at that company as an intern, so would leave work early, go uh, leave high school early, go work there. And um, I was like the office intern. So stapling a lot of things, I can fix any Xerox problem to this day. I can fix any jam. But what I learned there is I worked really hard. And what I didn't know was a company treasurer his wife was a senior vice president in that department. And at the end of my internship, she tapped me on the shoulder. She said, I've been watching you mm-hmm. and you're impressive. And I'd like to introduce you to, I hear you're studying, you're going to study business in university. I'd like to introduce you to my husband. And I ended up getting an internship then in the treasury function of you know one of the largest insurance companies um, in the U.S. And so as I was going through university, I was able to get that kind of experience. Brilliant. But that was a really important lesson for me, Melissa, is that always do your best. You never know who's watching. And even if your job is stapling a bunch of papers together or photocopying travel expenses, do it to your best of your capability and you don't know where it can lead. So that was kind of the stepping stone eventually that that led me to banking. And so, you know, talk to me about, you've been in Australia for 17 years now, I think you said. Yeah. So um, just give us a brief, how did that sort of journey come about and, and we'll pick up on a yeah. few points as we go through. Sure. So I I was successful in getting a graduate role with J.P. Morgan Chase in Manhattan when I came out of university. I you know, couldn't believe it, couldn't believe they, they chose me, but was super honoured and um, was taking life very seriously, as most New Yorkers in banking do. And yes. I was in my mid-20s. And my sister and I had this dream of coming to Australia for vacation or holiday, as I say now. 
And we came here for, for three weeks. I had to ask permission like a year in advance because, you know, Americans don't take three weeks off. Um, and I came here. I remember I was in my mid-20s and my sister and I were on this boat in the Sundays, And there were a bunch of Irish backpackers that were also in their mid-20s. Definitely not taking life so seriously. <laughs> um, I'm still friends with them, good friends with them. They all ended up moving to Melbourne. Uh, and I just saw, I, it was like the sliding doors moment, to be honest, Melissa. I saw myself going back to Manhattan, back to my apartment, back to my job. And, and then I saw these incredible people who were so light in their life and felt like, you know, the world was their oyster and they were going to live it, you know, on, on their schedule. Mm. And I never felt that I had that opportunity because I always was so ambitious and felt like if I didn't get that right job, if I didn't make that right decision, that was it. Mm. And, you know, in fairness, there was some reality to that, particularly where I was from and where I wanted to go. But I decided on that trip um, that that was it. I was going to quit my job at J.P. Morgan. Uh, I was going to sell my apartment and I was going to travel around the world. And I remember Frank Sinatra, also someone from New Jersey, said, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. So I was going to test out his theory. So I did. Uh, I sold everything. I remember my mom picking me up from JFK Airport from that Australia trip. She's like, how was your trip? I'm like, great. <laughs> I'm quitting my job, I'm selling my apartment and I'm traveling around the world by myself. And I remember, I could still see it as if it was yesterday. She didn't even skip a beat. She like immediately, her and I clap a lot and she immediately, she was like, great. And she was so proud and happy. Um, and that was exactly the response I think I needed. And um, I traveled around the world by myself for about six months, decided that I missed, I missed working. Yeah. <laughs> and during that time, I spent a lot of time in Australia and particularly in Melbourne. I just absolutely love the city and love this country and got a job. I thought I'd be here for a year or two, 17 years later, and this is home. Amazing. Um, I'm going to circle back to your gorgeous um, mother for a minute because that was how you and I met. And, um, you know, for the listeners, it's one of those things about, you know, you never know who you're going to meet and, and you know, the stories and things you're going to hear. And your mum and I were both trying to fly out of the US back to Australia and our flight got delayed for about eight hours and we just got chatting. And, you know, I loved when I read, subsequent to that, I read that article you wrote in Time magazine around how you learned to listen to your gut and you retold that story about your mum clapping and supporting you to take off yeah. and leave New York and leave your your life behind and I just thought that is so your mum I mean she was <laughs> she was your biggest cheerleader when we were standing at that airport together and so we just had one of those sort of instant connections she said you're gonna love Tammy and um and she's right you know when we met I just thought how beautiful so Funny, funny little story in the mix there, but she's yeah. flying out here to visit you in this incredible life you've built here. I want to chat about some of the some of your experiences along the way. And there's one that I've heard you speak publicly before about, but I'm not sure the audience will have heard. A couple of experiences, you're very passionate about gender diversity and supporting it. And you've had some interesting experiences in your career. Can I get you to share a couple of those with us? Sure. Um, I think, you know, the one that the probably the most like shocking one was um, when I was in Laos. And 
And it's really important for me to people, that people understand why I'm so passionate for gender equality. It's, it's not, you know, just that we deserve to be treated as equals and equal pay for, you know, equal jobs. Um, one of those things, uh, when I was in Laos, I was country head for ANZ in Laos, and I remember driving through the countryside, and one of my staff's, staff members said to me, share with me that in some parts of Laos where, you know, people are so impoverished, uh, they can't afford to bring up their children. And so when the girls uh, come of age around 12, 13, they actually then send them off because they can't afford to keep them. They, they send them off to Thailand to kind of fend for themselves. And then they will, you know, really support their son because the son has the best chance of getting a job and helping the company, uh, the sorry, the family, you know, uplift. Now, for starters, I mean, it's just horrible that in this, you know, decade, in this century, that, that families are still making that impossible decision. Yeah. But also that it is such a given that the the son is going to do better than the woman, that the woman is just, you know, dismissed. And, and to be quite frank, you know, with um, the challenges that exist, particularly in, in some greater Mekong countries with um, sexual slavery and human slavery, I mean, it's just, it's just horrendous. And it was really hearing that story that really drove me to that next level to not give up on this topic. Uh, because we see that fundamental lack of respect for women. I mean, if you look, the global statistic is one out of three women are victims of domestic abuse. Um, and the Australian statistic is in line with that. Uh, and so there's just this deep, deep misogyny, disrespect, um, undervaluing of women as equals. So sorry to take it there. But for me, that it's really important that we talk a little bit more honestly about that. So that people don't don't just think it's about giving us equal pay. It's so much deeper than that. And here's an example. So I was at uh, the Australian ambassador's residence. This was when I was the country head in Laos. And I was also the president of the Australian um, Chamber of Commerce there. And I was there. It was just a small group of us. It was probably about 12 of us having dinner. And at that time, we were talking about the industrialization of agriculture sector in Laos as a means to uplift the country out of poverty uh, and also get more food on people's table. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the dinner, I was bidding farewell to the guests and you know, one of the gentlemen that was on the other side of the table that I didn't really get a chance to talk to directly, um, I said to him, you know, lovely to meet you, good conversation. Um, I think I've met you before. I, I thought I, I recognized him. And he said to me in front of everyone, um, and I was one of the few women, aren't you the woman I paid $100 to last night? Yeah. And I mean, it still gets my heart racing yeah. when I think about it. I haven't told that story in a while. And I, I wish I could tell you I had some really quick-witted response that called out how inappropriate that comment was. There was just this awkward laughter from everyone, including myself. Like my instant reaction was, don't make a big deal of this. This is a humiliating comment. If I make a big deal of it, then I'm no fun. Yeah. Um, you know, all these things. And I just awkwardly laughed as did others. And then I went home as I was going to. I can tell you on that drive home, I wanted to turn that car around. I still don't know what I would have said that would have yeah. adequately captured that moment. But how could someone after that, 
not even after that dinner, but let's say after that dinner, after I was there representing financial sector, Australian businesses, just belittle me down to a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that one, that one I, to me is, is pretty, is pretty tough. And, you know, it was after that, that I thought to myself, you know what, I don't care how awkward I make anyone else feel, how people might feel that I'm no fun. I'm never going to let someone uh, humiliate me or try to humiliate me or say something inappropriate and get away with it without calling them out on the spot or shortly after so that they know that that's actually not acceptable. And it's certainly not acceptable to me. What and I have used that ever since. What would you do? Like what, because, because you know, there's still, that's extreme, the situation you've talked about. Unfortunately, you know, in my last series, I had a similar um, comment shared with me. Um, so so it's not uncommon, though. I mean, how would you handle that now? Or how do you handle sort of similar situations? Now, if I had my time again, I wouldn't have laughed. And I would have said that was not funny. Um, equating me to a prostitute is highly inappropriate and offensive. Um, you know, something along those lines, you know, like, I don't necessarily need a, uh, an apology from him because I don't, that, that would have been false, yeah. but just saying that I'm not going to accept that and that's not okay. And those around us should be horrified. So, okay. So you've been a senior professional female for a long time. You know, are there other things that, um, you know, are there other things that you've experienced that you think are worth kind of calling out briefly? There's probably a couple. Um, you know, while we're on the last topic, I mean, when I was the country head, and at that time we called them CEOs, I remember we were at, um, again, like a, I think it was a Chamber of Commerce event, and I was there. I remember talking to this gentleman, another business leader who had just arrived in the country. We hadn't met yet. And I remember him saying to me, like, oh, so what do you do here? And I said, oh, I'm the, the CEO for AMZ in Laos. And I kid you not, he just burst into laughter. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, I consider myself a funny person. And I normally love when I make people laugh. But I honestly didn't understand what was so funny about it. And that time I did say, like, what's so funny? And he was like, oh, no, what do you really do? I said, that's exactly what I do. Uh, and he was my contemporary age-wise. It wasn't... So that was an interesting one. I still to this day don't understand what was so funny. But something more recently, I remember when I first started in this role, I moved into this role during COVID. So I wasn't able to go out and meet a lot of our clients face-to-face for probably about six months into my time in the role. And I remember one of the times I was hosting, uh, co-hosting a lunch here at our headquarters with some of our senior clients alongside our group CEO and also our group executive institutional. And the three of us were kind of standing at the entranceway, welcoming our guests. And on two separate occasions, our guests who were meeting me, some of them meeting me for the first time, walked right by me, shook the hands of the gentleman standing right next to me, and turned their back towards me. So I'm assuming that the assumption that they made was that I was not a senior banker. I was not somebody worthy of their handshake or even acknowledgement. Um, and then obviously in, in both of those occasions, somebody pointed out the error in their ways. Neither of them apologized, neither of them acknowledged it, although their facial expression said it all. 
Um, I have gone on to be very close with those two individuals and they are not, um, they're not misogynistic people. They, you know, lovely people. But what that taught me is we are nowhere where we need to go that where we need to be, I should say that in that split second that those people made that decision, that assessment, someone who looks like me couldn't possibly be someone important or couldn't possibly warrant the pause and the handshake, you know, and, and that's the kind of stuff that I really want to address. You know, I want to change what the look of a senior business executive, a senior banker could look like so that we don't make assumptions. No. I mean, by the way, regardless of what my role was, if somebody's standing right there, how hard is it to just shake their hand and acknowledge? Hello on the way past. Exactly. Yeah. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. Okay. So, um, Tammy, thank you for sharing those. I want to move on to, you know, I picked up from the very first comment that you made that you've always been quite intentional about your decisions and your career. Was there a point where that, you know, really accelerated in terms of being intentional? Or when I just talk about being intentional as a leader, what comes up for you? There's probably two different things that come up to me. The first one is intentional with my career. I mean, as I mentioned before, I I never felt that I had the luxury of not being intentional. Mm -hmm. Maybe I did. Maybe that's just my paranoia. But I felt that if I wasn't clear, if I wasn't driven, if I didn't know exactly where I wanted to go, I would never get there because nobody would assume that's where I belonged or that's where I would want to go. Mm. So, like I said, I mean, from the age of like 15, I was already mapping out, okay, what companies do I need to work for? What experience do I need to gain? Um, what schools do I need to go to? What, you know, and so on and so on. And, and that's always stuck with me. I think. And then it reminded me again, particularly when um, when I first got engaged, just the presence of the ring. And I was here in Australia at that time. And the assumption that society management places, like it's just now it's a ticking time bomb, that ring. Uh-huh. So she's going to get married. She's going to have babies. She's either going to pull back on her career or want to work part time. She's definitely not going to be willing to go offshore on an important international assignment anymore. And as I was in management roles, I started hearing those kind of conversations and those assumptions being made. Mm -hmm. And also people telling me, you know, oh, so, you know, particularly then once the the wedding happened, okay, so then how long before the baby? Then you have the first baby, how long from the next baby? And all these things. And I realized I had to reignite that intention. And this time I needed to be really vocal about it because if I wasn't leading the conversations on what my career was going to look like, and if I wasn't making sure that those key decision makers were aware of my intentions, then they were going to fill in the gaps with what they have seen before or what they assumed, um, particularly women who are of childbearing age would want. Yeah. And so I had to be really open with um, the fact that 
we had help at home. That was not an issue. I was going to work. In fact, I think it was on my second date with my husband that I told him, I said, look, I just want you to know I'm going to be a working mom. <laughs> I think I must have known that he was the one, particularly when he just didn't like get the check and leave. Like, why is this woman telling me about this on our second date? Like, slow down. Um, that's what, he's so wonderful. Um, but, you know, I realized and I had to be open, like, we are willing to pick up and move. You know, we're a very international family. We want to experience different cultures. We're going to go with the kids. My husband has that flexibility. So I've always had to be very intentional and um, and probably uncomfortably open about those things. So it would have been nice to not talk about my personal life and when I was trying to have babies and that wasn't going to stop uh, my career aspirations. Um, it probably would have been nicer to keep that um, private, to be honest. Uh, but I didn't really feel like I had the luxury to. I felt like I was going to be overlooked. Um, and now in the role that I am, I mean, I still keep that with me. But now also what I'm really focused on is why do I keep on pushing myself? What is my intent as the managing director of this you know, major business? Um, if I keep on going further, and I, of course, I hope I do, that is my intent. Um, why? Because I think sometimes the bigger the role, the, the bigger the accountability, the bigger the profile, the risk that you can lose your way, um, ego can start to consume you. Um, people can start managing up. You can kind of, you can miss the play. You can believe your own story time and time again. You know, you can... Yes. And you can fail, you know. So for me, my intent, uh, and I've actually written this down, personal and professional, is really important and it drives me. And it is about uplifting those around me. It is about those people around me feeling included and feeling like they belong. And if that's what I achieve, regardless of what level my career takes me to, that to me is success. And that has to be my my guiding light, my North Star, as some people say. That is absolutely fantastic. I um, I wanted to ask you next, you know, along the way in terms of navigating your career, um, well, hopefully you've had some good feedback along the way. I worry right now that the environment has kind of resulted in a situation where I just don't think people are getting good feedback in their careers. Um, I think there's a bit of... You know, people are a little bit afraid to provide feedback about growth in the environment because it's very hard to get employees right now and a whole range of different things. You know, I just want to delve into that whole area of feedback with you. One about did you get and ask for good feedback along your career? And let's start there perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm like a true Cuban New Yorker. You know, like I just ask for what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I think feedback, giving feedback and hearing feedback is hard. And I absolutely agree. I think this hybrid way of working um, has made our interactions with our staff, with our bosses, with our stakeholders quite transactional. Yeah. You know, we're not walking around each other's desk, popping over. We're not grabbing each other for a coffee the way we used to and getting perhaps some more casual informal feedback than we would. Um, I, I was very fortunate in that I had a great line of great managers. And that was also deliberate too. You know, if I felt that somebody was not going to be a great line manager, I rethought the role. Um, but I also asked for it. 
you know, and I, I think what's important too is to create context when you're asking for it. Um, because it does put people out of their comfort zone and, you know, to say like, how am I going? Or can I have some feedback? That's really broad for a line manager to be able to give constructive feedback or helpful feedback or something that's really going to, you know, go past doing well, good job. You know? So I think what was helpful for me uh, was, you know, asking for feedback in the context of, hey, I've just delivered this project or, hey, I think that meeting didn't go as well as I could have, or, hey, I, I would love, you know, one day to aspire for this role, you know, where are my gaps? Where do you see my strengths? What are, you know, am I crazy even thinking about that? Which I did ask someone once and looked at me and said, no. <laughs> um, so I would, and I do encourage people like try to, try to kind of scope that feedback out and ask for it. And I do think we're so busy these days. Um, I just, I feel like we're getting pulled in a gazillion different directions. And I think the pace of change is so extraordinary. And the different avenues of which, which to connect to people like these podcasts or, you know, social media and so on. I don't think we're creating enough time, particularly as leaders, to actually stop and think and proactively reach out to our own teams and give that feedback. So that is something that I think all leaders and all individuals, we need to create more space for. But also my, my kind of call out there is don't wait for it to, you know, put that time in, ask for it if it's something that you feel that you need. So do you create that space? I have. So look, it is difficult. It has been the last few years with COVID. It feels like it's just all hands on deck, breakneck speed, just get the job done. Yeah. Um, but you know, this year I've really realized that I, I've got to kind of recenter myself and then go back to my intention. Am I living my intention? Um, and am I also, you know, creating a sustainable workday for myself you know am I actually being that leader that I always thought I would be when I finally got to that spot and I realized that I probably wasn't uh, particularly when borders opened yeah. both state and international borders because then it was like all right everyone get out there you know going to see all the clients I felt like I was on like a whistle stop tour around Australia yeah. seeing the team and my clients in person and I think that needed to happen, but I needed to then pause and reflect. So now I do. Now I have, and I have an amazing executive assistant who is just on the same page with me. And she's phenomenal and also helps remind me when I'm not doing the things I said I would do, like create space for this thinking, create space for those one-on-one -on -one important face-to-face -face conversations, um, virtual if you have to, but you know, ideally face-to-face. -face. And now I, I actually am really making time for those things. That's fantastic. I was going to ask what your sort of self-care, you know, in such a big, busy role, how do you how do you take care of yourself? Meditation for me is critical because it's not it's not just the role itself, it's the transition of getting home and being a lovely, patient, kind mother and wife. And my family deserves that. You know, I found there were at times where I wasn't self-caring, that I was keeping it together at work. Yeah. And then I'm getting home and I'm exhausted and I'm on like at the end of my wire and I'm snapping at my family. Yeah. The people who deserve it the least. Yeah. They get what's so left. So for me, yeah, yeah, exactly. So for me, transcendental meditation every morning, it's now in my calendar. I wake up before the house wakes up. 
and I go and do that. And that that is for me, it's taken me years. I'm not very good at meditating and clearing the mind and forget me and yoga. But this form of meditation just really, it almost like takes the edge off of me. And I could feel when I haven't done it, I feel the difference in my reaction time and my patience levels. Mm. Um, that's really important. A good night's sleep. God, I love my bed and getting a night's sleep. <laughs> that's really important. And laughter. To me, laughter is the best medicine. So if you're part of my team, I'm probably making jokes at really, you know, stressful moments just to kind of remind us that we're human beings and we've got to laugh and we got to have fun along the way. Those are probably my my three big things. I like to think I'm funny. My kids, they're on the fence about it, but they still laugh. They're young enough, right? So just uh, hang in there. Um, I want to ask you your perspective on why you think we don't have more female CEOs. You know, those numbers have been stubborn, despite the fact we've seen some brilliant news recently with regards to a couple of very large Australian companies. But why don't you think there's more? Yeah, I was. Uh, I did a little cheer when I saw Leah Weckert get announced as um, the next call CEO, go Leah, uh, and many others too. Um Look, the one thing that it, this is a big question, and I and I definitely don't believe it's just one thing. I think it's you know multitude of things. But one thing that I do not believe is a cause is a lack of pipeline. I get really frustrated when I hear people say that because I look around at A and Z, I look around at my clients, and I see strong, capable women everywhere. So I don't think that's a problem anymore. That for sure would have been a problem at some point. I don't think that's a problem for twenty twenty three. There are, I think, multiple reasons why. One of them, and a teeny tiny one that I, I think, you know, we can do is believe that we can do it. You know, we as women feel that we can handle it and, and should aspire to it, even though we haven't seen it before. And I know, at least for myself, sometimes there are moments where I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? You know, I'm a mom. And I know a lot of women, they might have caring um, uh, you know, I don't want to call them obligations, but, you know, they have a caring role, either it's elderly parents or their children, and they feel that it's a choice. It's either be present in their children's life or be, you know, a big ASX um, CEO. And I think what's changing, and I'm actually really grateful for COVID for this, is this whole virtual working and acceptance of flexibility. You don't have to choose anymore. You know, we live in a society now where you don't have to choose um, being present in your children's life. Of course, I make choices and I miss out. I'm missing out on my daughter's swimming carnival this Friday and I just can't make it work. Yeah. But I'm there in moments that matter and I'm there in other ways. And I don't feel that I have to choose anymore. So we need to feel that it's not, a, we don't have to choose. We can do both. Men have been doing both for a very long time. The other one, uh, and this is really controversial. I probably shouldn't say it, but it's just that deep rooted misogyny that exists in our society that some people don't even realize is still there. Uh, and it's not that it's coming solely from men, it's coming from society, men, women, uh, non-binary. It's, it's that little feeling that people get sometimes when women speak in a way that just grates them the wrong way, mm -hmm. that just makes them feel like perhaps they can't win the hearts and minds of a large organization or that they might not connect with the board or they might upset investors. Those, those little nuances, I feel like the margin of error allowable for women, executive women is so small. Mm -hmm. 
compared to you know the margin of error that society gives to just that general masculine voice that we've been hearing all our lives. Yes. Um, and I don't say this with judgment and I don't say this to accuse anyone. I, it's just something that I have observed. And I do think, I think we're, we're doing a lot better with it, but I still see it there. And it's so, it's so fascinating that you bring that point up because I think the, um, because often it's, completely unintentionally and completely subconscious that some of these things are happening. But what I hear from a lot of women then is they're second-guessing themselves about is that the right thing to say, um, is that the right tone to use because they've received so much feedback about, as you said, that narrow kind of that narrow marginal space. So, yeah, I don't think it's controversial. I think it's important, you know, it's important conversations to have I I love one other thing that I heard you say before I asked the final question, and it was about um, you know if you're if you're in a board meeting, if you're part of a committee, and all these sorts of things about insisting on gender equity and going and finding a young female or um, you know anyone in in a minority, bringing them into the situations to see how decisions are made and how strategies debated and challenged, is that so is that something you can continue to do as a leader? Do you do that intentionally? I do. I think it's so important. Um, and I'm glad that you brought it out more to just than gender to even ethnicity. You know, people who otherwise are not being represented at a leadership team table. I mean, here at ANZ, I'm on the reconciliation uh, committee and it's just opened my eyes even more. I mean, really looking around and saying, do the decision makers around this table, are they a good representation of society? And if not, who's missing? What voices are missing? And you know, can we can we think about including them a little bit more in different ways, either through working groups, um, putting together project teams, you know, do I have a diverse representation of really strong people? Um, on working on those important projects. And so I'm very, I'm very deliberate when it comes to that now and very aware. Uh, and then if I look around and I can't see strong people representing that, you know, that part of society, then what work am I doing to then uplift and help create that, you know, we're talking about pipeline before, create that pipeline of people. So in two years time, there is someone ready there. Yeah, fantastic. So I want to ask the final question I ask of everybody, which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? For me, well, feminine, when I think of feminine leadership, I don't think about a female leader. I think about those qualities that are typically associated with being feminine. So empathetic, patient, um, even gentle and refined and you know, kind. And so when I think of brave feminine leadership, I think of leaders right now who are channeling those characteristics of vulnerability, those characteristics and their leadership style. And those are men and women and non-binary. You know, it is about acknowledging that we need the masculine and the feminine to be balanced leaders. And that is not a gender, that is those, you know, those qualities. And so right now I see that it's still being considered brave. I think we're we're heading to a time where that's actually just gonna be leadership. Yeah. You know, there'll be a time where that's not considered brave. That's just a given. 
but right now that that's what I think great feminine leadership is and when it's balanced we can take gender out of it exactly <laughs> I am so thrilled to have had the chance to have the conversation with you Tammy thank you so much for adding your voice to the conversation and I feel so lucky to have met your gorgeous mom and I have to say Melissa she is you're a big fan as well she came from that airport saying you have to meet Melissa Hamilton. She's got a nice thick Cuban accent. She's like, you will love her. <laughs> and she was right. Fantastic. Thank you. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.